interesting that he provided this for us because the details that are here could only have come from him and he tells on himself. The whole book is a self-revelation of how messed up his thinking was and he writes it down and he passes it on so that we would actually possess this story of how his mindset was so distant from the mind and the heart of God. This morning, as we study together, we want to kind of give an introduction to the book and an overview and to think through maybe why Jonah was thinking the way that he was. So we're going to get a little bit of background. So we're going to kick off by looking at a couple of things. The first thing, just filling in, I didn't put it on screen, the missional mindset on your uh, worship guide there. I've got a handout for you. Went to the full page just because it's a little easier to read the larger print. And I think that's beneficial to us. But there, the missional mindset, to seek to know God, to grow in His likeness, and to show others what He is like. That was Jonah's command. It was his calling. He was to know God, grow in His likeness, and then go and demonstrate the likeness of God to others. And he failed at that. We're going to talk about how he arrived at that. And so let's kind of roll into the outline and look at the big story. The big story is a story about three different kinds of hearts. Let me show those to you. The first is the heart of the self-righteous, which would be called the arrogant heart. The heart of the self-righteous. Number one, letter A, the heart of the self-righteous. The self-righteous person in the story, the arrogant heart, is Jonah. And the story unfolds how deep his self-righteous arrogance is, and it's deep to the place that he has become comfortably indifferent to the state of the souls of people around him. Those on the ship with him, those he was called to in Nineveh, Jonah doesn't care. And his arrogance about his own self-righteousness, his arrogance about uh, his, his own pride has hindered him seeing rightly the needs of others and how others were dependent upon the very grace that had been shown to him. The second heart we need to look at is the heart of the rebel. That's the Ninevites. God describes them as evil and wicked. Their heart is a wicked heart. They simply live heinously all the time. There's no restraint upon them. God says, their deeds have come up to me. So evidently, if you could think of a pile of deeds so high that it reaches heaven, that's kind of what he's telling us. It's so bad that it has my focus, my attention, and I am going to act in response to it, but not in the way that Jonah would like for God to act. And then letter C is the heart of the Redeemer. All through the book of Jonah, God is going to be explaining what he's like. 
from the very first word of sending Jonah to the very last word as he explains grace through the event of the plant and this worm that eats the plant. God is teaching what he is like. He is one who has a pursuing heart. God pursues lost, distant, wicked, sinful, prideful, self-righteous, unrighteous, rebellious people. That's what He does. And so what He is like is all over the book of Jonah. And He wants that message not just known by us, but communicated by us. He wanted Jonah to take what his heart is like, what God's heart is like, and take that heart and deliver the message to the Ninevites. And Jonah didn't want to do that. Jonah, because of his own prideful, sinful heart, his arrogance made him disdain these people and consider them a risk to his own country. It's important for us to understand that the background of Jonah gives reason for us to understand some of Jonah's reluctance. We're going to get a picture of that in just a moment, but let me walk through an outline in the structure of Jonah. It comes right out of Tim Keller's book, page 3, The Prodigal Prophet. Let's walk through that together. There's sort of a scene 1 and scene 2 in the book of Jonah. Scene 1 is chapters 1 and 2. Scene 2 is chapters 3 and 4, and they literally simply run in parallel to each other. First, it's the story of Jonah and the pagans and the sea. And second, Jonah, the pagans, and the city. So in both instances, Jonah's kind of immersed in pagan culture, pagan behavior, pagan people. The very people that he wants to not associate with, he's dumped in the midst of, either by running from God or by obeying God. First little fill in the blank there for chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 2 verse 1 is, God's word comes to Jonah. If you look in chapter 1 and you look in chapter 3, you'll see this parallel. God's word comes to Jonah. Here it is. Following that is the message that is to be conveyed. Chapter 1, here's the message. Go preach against that city. Chapter 3, here's the message. Go and tell them that they're going to be destroyed unless they repent. The next parallel is the response of Jonah to each of those revelations of God. God's Word comes to him. The message is told to him. Chapter 1 is like, I'm out of here. Chapter 3 is like, oh, reluctantly, but I will go, I will obey. Then we see Jonah in relationship to God's world. He goes out and he gives a word of warning, and a word of warning is given to him. Happens in chapter 1, 4, and chapter 3, verse 4. And then you have the response of the pagans to that warning. Then you have the response of the pagan leaders. And then this really strange thing happens in both instances. And that is, it shows how the pagans' response was ultimately better than Jonah's. This is very interesting. The story of Jonah is very much like several stories that Jesus told. When Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, 
he was making a very similar comparison. He was paralleling two different lives and two different kinds of responses to God. When Jesus tells the story of the two men who go up to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector, similar. When he tells the story of the prodigal son and his brother, it's the same thing. In each of those stories, there's this picture of how response to God should look and how response to God does look. And the surprising thing is that the so-called bad guy or destitute guy or sinful guy in each of those has the right response. And the so-called religious guy, moral guy, has the wrong response. And so what happens in the book of Jonah, we have these Two times that God's word goes out. And we see that ultimately in both of those times, the pagans respond better than Jonah to the words of God. And that contrast is held up in tension all through the book. And it's very interesting that Jonah would record this about himself and then turn it over to us. It's like, for all the coming generations we're going to read, Jonah, you really blew it. You missed it. And even at the end of the book, we still see that he's struggling to get it. And that's how it kind of closes Jonah and God's grace. In chapter 1, how the... Excuse me, i got to catch up. How God taught grace to Jonah through the fish. And in chapter 4, chapter 2 actually, in chapter 4, how God taught grace to Jonah through the plant. So there's two illustrations. Now... Let me share with you, first off, I think the story of Jonah is real. Now, there's several reasons I think it's real. First, it's in the Bible. I tend to think things in the Bible are real. So I have a little bit of a predisposition when I come to the Bible that it's telling me the truth. But also, Jesus thought that the story of Jonah was real, and he used the illustration of the story of Jonah about his own life. And he did so in Matthew and in Luke, and he did so on two different occasions in Matthew. For two different things that he was teaching them. And so, in Matthew and Luke, you have Jesus' words saying, the story, it's not just a fable, it's not just a imagination, it's a real person, and he gave a real sign of a real Savior who was going to die a real death and who was going to be buried, and just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for these three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for these three days. Uh, He was giving a picture of his life through the life of Jonah. And then he later says, someone greater than Jonah is talking to you. And at the talk of Jonah, the message of Jonah, the Ninevites repented. And here I am greater than Jonah preaching to you and you're not repenting. So something's wrong with your understanding of God and his grace. So let's zoom in real quick on Jonah and what's going on. This uh, map was built by a man named Mark Berry. A really great picture. You can see his hometown right there in the middle, Gath Hefer. I'm glad I don't have to write that on my hometown. You can see where Joppa is, down a little bit to the left. That would be southwest. You can see where Nineveh is, northeast. And you can see that when he gets the message from God, he leaves home and goes the opposite direction. And he goes down to Joppa, catches a boat, and heads out to sea. You can see where Nineveh is located. If you've heard of the town of Mosul, anybody heard of the town of Mosul? That's kind of in the news today. Well, that's in 
uh, Iraq and straight across the river from Mosul is Nineveh. It actually is like twin cities, kind of like Pineville, Alexandria are. And uh, it's a big area. A lot of archaeological digs have gone on there. And here's a picture of how far Jonah was going. It is thought that Tarshish was all the way over here in the southern tip of Spain. And so Jonah isn't wanting to stay around. If we back up there, let's see if I can get my reverse to work today. Back me up there one, Lynn. Let's see. If you'll take a look at this zoom in, you're going to notice that Assyria, where Nineveh is the capital, is the direct northern threat to Israel. They're the ones who have this growing power. And Jonah's preaching came to Nineveh somewhere between 780 B.C. and 760 B.C. Somewhere in that window was the time that he went to Nineveh. It was at this time that Nineveh was becoming a world power. And because they were becoming a world power, they were the greatest security threat to Jonah's home country. They were such a security threat that Jonah hated them because he knew that their potential, based on past activities and present activities, was that it was very likely that these people would come down and make direct war against his home and his home country. And so when Jonah gets this call, it's to go to this growing military country threat who were some of the most vicious people on earth. The way that they won their wars was through horrid acts upon the people that they captured. And it would strike such fear upon others that the other people would simply surrender having seen the gruesomeness of how Assyrians treated people. And I'll tell you some more details about that later. I I had to sit down today and say, I'm not going to tell them everything I know about Jonah today because we'll be here all day. And and so, well, I, I want to preach five sermons on it and not all five of them today. So we'll talk... A little bit more about that. And so he's really upset because the people he's sent to are the greatest military political threat to his country. And it's like, why would I go to the enemy and talk to our greatest enemy about surrendering to God? What, what profit is there in going to the enemy? And so Jonah's really upset with God because he doesn't want God to forgive the Assyrians. He wants God to kill them. Make sure you get this right. Jonah's at the other end of the spectrum from God. What Jonah wants is death and judgment, fire and brimstone. Give them the old treatment you gave Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what you do with wickedness, God. You don't send missionaries to wicked people. You send fire and brimstone to them. And so, Jonah's struggling with this. So when he gets the call to go to Nineveh, it's not surprising he goes the other way because it's like, are you kidding me? They hate us 
and they want to kill us, and they kill pretty much everybody they come in contact with. If you ever watch Star Trek, they're like the Borg. They're just an unstoppable force. And so Jonah's really upset about it. But Jonah's a very strong nationalist too. He, he's a pro-Israel guy. When Jeroboam came to power, Jeroboam II, and that's what we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, when he came to power, Jonah was the, the, the theological driving force between restoring the borders. What did that mean? It meant, okay, we're going to move northward and take our land back that the northern people have taken from us. So Jeroboam goes to war at, at the word of Jonah, and he conquers the stuff that had been lost north of their city, north of their country, and he gets that land back and expands the borders way back out to an earlier period of time. And it's like, man, he's the hero for that, even though he's very wicked and very sinful. He's politically, man, he is really ringing the bell. And so Jonah was a very strong nationalist and he loved his country. And so he thought, how can I go over to the other side? If we're just now expanding our borders, how am I going to go up and preach to the people who are the greatest threat to our borders? What, what is up with that? And so Jonah's really struggling. Jonah takes this message to either Shalmaneser the fourth or Ashurdan uh, the third. And that's important because one of those two kings, we're not sure which one he is because of how the timeline falls, one of those two kings actually brings his whole nation to repent at Jonah's preaching. He actually makes an edict as the king of a wicked country to turn and to give over all of who they are over to God. So it's, a, it's a huge deal. Okay, so let's, let's move forward here. Number three. There is a mystery slash question underlying the book of Jonah. This is very important in understanding how the Old Testament unfolds and how it leads up to the New Testament. Jonah is asking, and, and, and the question is being begged under here, this is, this is it. How can God be merciful and just? How can that be? How can God be righteous and just and forgive wicked sinners? How can He do that? Jonah is struggling with that. These are not, these are not the nice guy next door who cuts your grass sometimes. These are villainous, murderous, slaughter people. They are wicked at a level that's hard for us to even understand. And so Jonah's going, wait a minute, God. You, you can't be just. You can't, you can't be right and forgive these kind of people. And so Jonah doesn't even want the people to have the opportunity for forgiveness. That's how much he hates them. And so he withdraws the opportunity for their forgiveness by withdrawing the message he was sent to preach. So they know nothing of God, His offer of forgiveness, His gracious nature. They're just hurling toward judgment. And God says, you go take this message to them. And Jonah gets very angry about this. 
Now, the book of Romans in chapter 3 deals with this question. I want to take you there for just a moment because it raises the question. And I want you to see just a moment of how Paul knew that that question existed and answers it in Romans chapter 3. Now, Romans chapter 3 does what Jesus did in his stories. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, the story of the prodigal son and his brother, the story of the two men who went up to temple and prayed. What he does is he shows that all people are sinners and in need of grace. Whether you are religious or whether you are rebellious, whether you are self-righteous or self-indulgent, whatever it is, everyone is under sin and stands before God indistinctly. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, the theology that Jonah is trying to get his mind around is explained, and at his time it was a mystery and a hard question. How can God, who set up the sacrificial system, how can God, who is just and judges sin, how can He just forgive these people because they turn to Him? What, what makes Him capable of doing that and still being just? And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Okay, the righteousness of God. That's what's in question in Jonah's book. Jonah's like, wait a minute, how how can God be righteous and forgive people like this? Just like if you knew a judge who was letting criminals go, you would have a hard time calling him a just or a righteous judge. Because you say, wait a minute, he's letting the criminals go. They committed a crime. Where's the penalty for their sin? And so Jonah's like, where's the penalty for these guys' sin? You ought to judge them, God. You ought to just bring it on them. In fact, the end of the book of Jonah ends with him building a little hut, overlooking the city, waiting on fire and brimstone to fall on it if they mess up. He says he built that so he could watch and see what happened. Romans 3 says in verse 22, The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Look at the last phrase in verse 9. What's it say? For there is no... Somebody help me. Thank you. There is no distinction. What does he mean? Well, the next verse that we quote all the time, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Jonah. There's no distinction between you and the Ninevites. Let me bring it home. There's no distinction between me and the terrorist. Are y'all tracking with that? See, we want some kind of self-righteousness. We want to lift ourselves above some kind of person so that we can prove there is something in me of my doing that's better than them and their doing. But God drops right on top of every one of us these words. Listen carefully. Let them drink them in. Put them right here. There is no distinction. For how many have sinned? 
Amen? So I don't, I don't know what where your distinction meter is. Jonah had one. He had a, somewhere, his distinction meter was there. He's like, okay, I'm in the good, they're in the bad. We're good to go on that. Jonah is just like every one of us. We would really like to have some distinction based on our own goodness, behavior, righteousness, morals, nationality, ethnicity, whatever it is, we would love to have it. And God comes right in and says, there is no distinction. That's hard for us. We know sinners. I don't know if you know sinners. I know sinners. And I think about them a lot. I think about how much better I am than them. It's a natural state of thinking in me. And I have to fight it with the gospel and the truth of the Bible every single day. It's not foreign to us. It wasn't foreign to Jonah. Jonah's not a knucklehead. This guy's been immersed in God's Word. He's not somebody who has no idea about what God is like. Later on, he's going to complain to God and say, I knew you would do this. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew what you're like. He didn't think God was right in forgiving him. And so Paul is working this theology out. But I want you to see how Paul works it out. It says, they all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 of Romans 3, God presented Jesus as an atoning sacrifice in His blood, received through faith. That is to demonstrate God's righteousness because of in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. What does He mean? Ninevites. The only way He could pass over the Ninevites' sin and not judge them was that when they turned to Him, He had to take the penalty of their sin and put it on somebody's credit card. And that would be Jesus. And Jesus would get the bill at the cross for the Ninevites' sin that was forgiven on the day that they returned. And the only way that God can be just and justify, righteous and give righteousness, is through Jesus. So he says that, verse 28. God presented Jesus to demonstrate God's righteousness at the present time. So that God would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the crediting of the of the goodness of Jesus is given to the Ninevites when they turn to God and the crediting of their evil and their sin is put on Jesus at the cross so that God is just to forgive these people based on the work of Jesus at the cross. The same way that you and I are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way of salvation. Salvation is not gained by comparison of human to human. Salvation is gained by faith in Jesus Christ alone through repentance of sin and placing our personal faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. That's what our calling is. And so, Jonah's working through a question that gets answered later, but he has to trust God. And that leads us to number four, and this one's my hardest one for me. The story of Jonah is about possessing an understanding of God that one does not embrace. Come with me to Jonah, 
We're going to move ahead of where we've read to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Really, it starts in verse 1. The Ninevites repent, and that makes Jonah angry. It says in verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. In other words, God, these are terrorists. These are people that flay people alive. These are people, they're, they're excellent at destroying human bodies. They specialize in gruesome techniques of rendering people to be their subjects. And I just do not like the idea that you would forgive them for their sin. And Jonah gets angry. He gets bitter in his heart. It says that Jonah was greatly displeased, and it says he became furious. Not just a regular angry, he's hot angry. You ever been hot angry? All of a sudden you get a little irrational in your anger. He's that kind of angry. And he says this, and this is what led me to write what, we, what I wrote on number four. He prayed and said to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew the story of Jonah is about possessing an understanding of God. I knew. And what did he know? That you are gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah's a great theologian. He can quote the verses. He can describe God. But he will not embrace the heart of God. He will not embrace the mission of God. He will not embrace the ministry of God. He's so callous that as the ship is sinking and the men of the ship are throwing all their hard-earned goods all of the things that they're going to make profit from, all of the stuff that they're going to survive on with the ship, they begin throwing their living off of the ship and the ship is tossing and turning and they're sinking and their lives are in danger and economically they are going under. Jonah sleeps. Several years ago, Keith Green did a song called Asleep in the Light. It's sort of a parable, kind of of Jonah, but it's about how there's this darkness over the world and they are captivated by it. And yet the Christians, the believers, are asleep in the light. And as this judgment passes over the world and lives are destroyed, we just kind of kindly, calmly sleep through it. And Jonah's down in the heart of the boat. The boat is on the verge of sinking. The men are throwing their stuff off. They're all screaming and crying out to God. And Jonah's taking a nap. So I put the heading on the front of your, of your outline. 
Jonah's simple disobedience to the word of the Lord to go to Nineveh becomes comfortable indifference. I want to, I want to query you for a moment before we move to our close. Are we comfortably indifferent to the fact that there are three billion people on this earth in the same state as the Ninevites? They have no knowledge of God other than general revelation, the creation, and their conscience. They have no knowledge of the gospel that has been shared with them. They have no church to go to, no church plant, no outreach, no evangelism. Many of them have no access to the Word of God, even in their own language. Are we comfortably indifferent that they are perishing? We used to heartily sing out the hymn, Rescue the perishing! Care for the dying! Jesus is merciful. Jesus will say. Is that even on our minds today? Is it possible that the same comfortable indifference that characterized the ministry of Jonah could captivate the ministry of Kingsville? One person at a time. One house at a time. One family at a time. Where we go to bed, we get up, we go through the day, we go to bed, we get up, we go through the day. We do all the things with, with, without a thought for the Nineveh that exists. The story of Jonah is about possessing an understanding of God that one does not embrace. I am so guilty of this. I can preach it, I can teach it, I can say it. But to really embrace that God is this merciful, this loving, this forgiving, this passionate about the salvation of the lost. To really embrace that, I fail. I want to bring us to three lessons that I want to take home. And we'll pray together. Number five. Three truths. Number one, not all storms we experience are the result of our own actions. Some of you, you're in the storm today and somebody else caused it. There's a Jonah related to you somewhere who's running from God and it has wreaked havoc in your life. You don't know what to do. It's brought devastation to your family, to your home, to your finances, to your relationships. It's just tearing everything down. Your ship feels like it's sinking. You're throwing everything overboard. And that person's asleep. And they don't even seem to be bothered that their life is bringing this much damage to yours. It's a hard place to be. When you hear the men crying out in chapter 1, 
The sailors, verse 5, were afraid. And they each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. Some of you are in a pretty bad storm right now and you don't know what to do. It's hard. And you got a Jonah somehow related to you. He's he's on your boat. Pray for him. Pray for her. Could be a Jonette. Ask God to shake him awake. Ask God to intervene. Letter B. No one operates in isolation. The storms of my disobedience may have consequences in the lives of others. I can't overemphasize that some of you today here are a Jonah. And you've brought stuff to your family, to your friends, to people around you. And you're causing your ship to sink. And you're burning your time surfing the net, playing games, playing on the phone, going to work, earning a living, partying, whatever it is. And your boat is going down fast and you're asleep. You're spiritually totally out of it. I must say to you what the men said to Jonah. Verse 6, the captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up and call on your God that He may save us. I think there's this idea, and I think it comes out of American individualism, which has certain great aspects to it because it spoke highly of personal responsibility. But out of that individualism came this idea that we kind of we live in isolation. Well, I do whatever I want to do. It's not affecting nobody else. Without understanding, Jonah is affecting the lives of all of these people around him and all of the people in Nineveh while he's asleep. He's perfectly comfortable. He's not alarmed at all about the impending doom around him. Are you a Jonah in your family? Are you a Jonah in your relationships? Are you doing things in such a way that you know God is bringing judgment around you and you're asleep? You're going to snooze through another Sunday and go on with your life. Finally, Most of us have a Nineveh. A place of distance, dislike, and disobedience. It's something you want to stay away from because you don't like it and you'll disobey God to continue to dislike it and stay away from it. I cannot help but think if there are three billion people on earth that have little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there has to be a movement of God 
in the churches where He's calling dozens of people out to leave their comforts and to go into the hard places of the world and to preach this good news. And I have to believe that there are some folks asleep in the church. And they're unwilling to get out of the comfort. They're running the opposite direction of where God wants them. They're keeping a healthy distance because of their dislikes. And they're openly disobeying God. I'm going to close with a simple question and then ask you to pray with me. What or who or where is your Nineveh? What or who or where is your Nineveh? What is that thing you want to stay distant from because you dislike it and you're willing to disobey God over? What is it? I... I dare say most of us have one or two or more. Would you bow with me? I want you to know how passionate God is about redemption and how He wants to save, how He wants to deliver, how He wants to redeem because He is a pursuing God. And I want you to know that just like he was pursuing the Ninevites, he's pursuing you. Doesn't matter how wicked you've become, he still is offering this wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that in love, God sent Jesus his son, born of a virgin. And Jesus lived his life sinlessly, never disobeying His Father. He lived the way you should have. He lived as your substitute, taking your place in action where you would not obey. 